Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. A little while ago, uh, you'll recall that Volkswagen got $13 billion from the federal government to set up an electric vehicle battery plant in St. Thomas. Big deal. $13 billion is a lot of money. Apparently, there was going to be a lot of jobs. Okay. Uh, However, maybe predictably, other companies like, for example, Stellantis, which is building an electric vehicle battery plant down in the Windsor area, said, well, wait a second. What about us? And now in the past few days, we're hearing that they, it seems, are heading towards a 19 or up to a $19 billion handout from the federal government. This all seems to be getting rather expensive. I want to bring in Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, thank you for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, it, am I overstating it or is this starting to sound rather rich uh, regardless of what we're building? It's a lot of money we're throwing around. Uh, far beyond that, I mean, I think this is, I'll be use, you know, very strong language. I think it's catastrophic. It's catastrophic because, I mean, there's several reasons why it's catastrophic. First off, it is not the role of government, federal or provincial, to be paying businesses to uh, open up their business um, so that that business can make money, even though they're not paying for the cost of setting up the business. Uh, there are over 2 million corporations in Canada, according to StatScan. Many of them are small, for sure. But, you know, it's not that's not the job of, of government to to establish to pay for all the startup costs and the operating costs and the and the machinery, et cetera, et cetera, in every last business. And so this is first and foremost, it's a very dangerous precedent. Secondly, we have the lowest unemployment rate since the mid 60s. So this implication, you know, if they were doing this in 2008 in the middle of a deep recession where the, uh, the uh, uh, you know, unemployment had skyrocketed, well, I probably wouldn't agree, but it, it, at least there's an argument that can be made. Look, there's lots of people out of work. We got to help them. In this instance, the shortages are still real, that there's uh, not enough workers. And so what will happen is these two companies uh, are going to go and poach or recruit people with technical skills, engineering skills, and so forth, from other companies in auto parts and manufacturing and so forth, because the skills are transferable. So they're not even going to produce net new jobs. All they're doing is creating a job churn. You know, it's like people that get angry at Rogers, so some go to Bell, and people that get angry at Bell go to Rogers, so they just churn around, and at the end of the day, nothing changes. But what uh, so about the idea, Ian, but what about the idea with that, that if they didn't do this, and this is what the defenders of it would say, if we don't do this, they'll move to another country and those people who are experts in this will leave here to go work wherever that is. So we do lose people. Um, to that argument, the it's already happened. It's been going on for 15 years. All anyone has to do is go and Google how many auto plants did we have or firms at 25 years ago, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And you'll see that there's been over the last 15, 20 years, uh, Canada's uh, manufacturing sector and specifically auto sector has declined very dramatically. It was in 1970, uh, manufacturing was 35% of GDP. Today, it's about 12%. So Canada hasn't fallen off the cliff because more and more jobs were created in the services sector, you know, banking and housing and consulting and pensions and finance and so on. Okay, so this idea that you've got to build cars or you're doomed is nonsense. Australia said no to a subsidies in 2017. Every plant that was still there left the country and Australia is more prosperous than ever. So the argument that if you don't do it, 
uh, they're going to you're going to lose all your jobs is simply not accurate. And the third argument uh, against this is it sets a precedent because other companies in this industry and related industries are going to say, hey, look, you gave 13 billion to Volkswagen. You gave 19 billion, it looks like, to Stellantis. OK, it's our turn. We want subsidies like that, too. We're General Motors. Uh, we're Ford. We're other companies that may be making uh, the food processors in Canada. And they're going to be saying, look, if you can give the money to them on the argument of jobs, we're creating jobs, too, in our sector. We've seen this. So, we, we saw this with um, with the Loblaws, did we not? With the freezers about a year ago or a year and a half ago, where everyone exactly. freaked out because they gave millions to put in freezers. And, you know, we always right. hear... We always hear people say, well, the slippery slope argument, don't do that, or the Pandora's box, but it does seem like it's Pandora's box. It is. It is a slippery slope. And and we're going into this uh, for the next 50 years into periods of of, of uh, aging population. And the population is going to dramatically get older. Older people need a lot more health care. It's just a nat the nature of getting older. Your body starts to decline. And the stats are very clear from Kaihai, Canadian Institute of Health Information. Uh, elder people over 65 consume vastly greater amounts per person per year than younger. And we have huge queuing. So there's an area where we have a very, we don't have enough resources going into healthcare. So instead, in an industry that's in long-term strategic decline, we are pouring in these billions. And uh, Scott, I want to make one more point about that. I looked at the, the, uh, the top 10 countries, countries for the production of cars. Canada is not in the top 10 and it's con the industry is concentrating into a handful of countries, China, Germany, Japan, US, South Korea, and they're pouring subsidies in. The US is 10 times larger than Canada. The idea that they're, that the Americans are going to allow us to subsidize and, and acquire a much larger footprint in auto industry in Canada I just think is nonsense. But we I mean, could not make the case that, look, we're not going to keep up with the car manufacturing, but we could be the central place in the Western world for electric vehicle batteries. So you come to us for your batteries, you build your car wherever you want. That that doesn't work? Yeah. It, well, of course it could work, but I, I would argue the following. We don't have any comparative advantage or competitive advantage in making batteries. We've never done it. We do have a 300-year history comparative advantage in critical minerals and ex exploiting uh, natural resources. And there's only a small number of countries in the world that can even provide the critical minerals that are critical to batteries and electric cars. You know, if they had spent this money or some fraction of it saying, look, we've got to build the infrastructure to ring a fire so that the companies can go in there and develop and exploit, extract the critical minerals. Well, then there's an argument because we could become a dominant player in the world. The idea that Canada is going to become a dominant player in the automotive ecosystem, it can only be said by people who have not studied this industry. It is massive, yes, and it is increasingly concentrating in those five countries I've already identified. We are going to be a bit player, and down the road, the U.S. will offer more subsidies, and down the road, we're going to one day wake up and say, gee whiz, we can't just keep on play, uh, getting bribed, basically, or bribing the company to stay here as they're going to go and locate with the rest of their ecosystem in the States because the U.S. is 10 times larger. And remember, we have the lowest unemployment rate in, in 70 years. We don't even need these, quote, jobs because the economy is booming red hot 
and we have unbelievably low unemployment. Just before I let you go, do you believe then, and you sort of touched on it, but do you believe that because of these two specifically, we will see numerous other companies in this country going cap in hand to the government saying, where's mine? I think it's inevitable. I think it's inevitable because the precedent has been set. If it was only a couple of million or five or 10 million, probably isn't worth all the paperwork you have to prepare to submit the proposal. You got to hire accounting firms and law firms. And, you know, it takes a long time. But when you're talking billions, I mean, this this is way bigger than any lottery ticket. And so a company, this is giant money, even for a large corporation. And it is in their self-interest to go and hire and put together a team to create the proposal to the governments for more to, for large subsidies. So I think we're going to see more companies coming forward, cap in hand, with a business case, saying you got to subsidize us. So I don't see where the end, I don't see the end game. I don't see the exit strategy. It is, uh, it, it, boy, it's an interesting one. Uh, by the way, our friend Dan McTague, who we have on the show uh, every once in a while, put out a tweet today. 19 billion among 38 million Canadians equals 500 per person. Now add the cost of VW, Ford, and GM. Uh, yeah, it's expensive. Uh, Ian Lee from the Sprout School. Only five, four million, five million people, and four, four, uh, you know, uh, three. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, two hundred, uh, two million, two and a half, uh, two thousand five hundred jobs in the two, and it's going to come up to over four million a job. The subject. <laughs> That's oh, thank you, Ian. That uh, that just brought it down to the most depressing level possible to finish yes. this. Really yes. appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Tomorrow evening at 7:30, the Hamilton Ticats will have their second preseason game. Prior to that, 6:30, I believe, and my next guest, who knows everything about everything, will be able to confirm. But 6:30 here on 900 CHML, the pregame starts. After the game, you will be able to catch up with my next guest because he is Rick Zamper, and he is not only the star of Good Morning Hamilton, but he is also the star of the fifth quarter, which you hear after every Ticats game. Sir, how are you? I am quite celestial today. Thank That's, you for that intro. And actually, you know, uh, you are definitely the star of Good Morning Hamilton. I, I would suggest, and not taking anything away from you, that your inebriated callers after big losses may be the star of the fifth quarter. <laughs> Just saying. I, uh, I, I, can't, I can't confirm nor deny whether that is the case. <laughs> I'll, I'll let the people decide. Uh, now, I don't know if you're uh, willing to make this public, but there was a, uh, an online meeting here of radio station people today, and um, you made a, an, uh, an astounding proclamation about the Ticats this season. Now, is this something that you're willing to go public with, or is this waiting for, for a different moment when we see what's going on? I, I have already publicly announced said statement, so I can repeat it if you wish. Please, yes. For those who haven't heard, uh, it is now uh, June the 1st. The yep. Grey Cup is uh, June to July, August, September, October, November. is more than six months away. Not a single ball has been kicked or thrown in anger yet. And Rick Zamperin says... I said on May 26th, to be most accurate, that it's going to happen. Come November 19th at Tim Hortons Fields, when the Bollocks kicked off in the 110th Grey Cup in our own backyard under a glistening snow in <laughs> minus two conditions, a light wind. This is a very flood. specific prediction. Well, okay, that keep going. The, <laughs> <laughs> that the Hamilton Tiger Cats, believe it or not, ladies and gentlemen, will be crowned Grey Cup champions, thus ending the longest active Grey Cup drought in 
league history right now. Uh, Ty Cats, as we know, I've not won since 99. In my heart of hearts, in the gut that I am feeling right now, it's a little jiggly at the moment because I just had dinner, I am <sighs> feeling that the Ty Cats are going to be crowned Great Cup champions. Okay, now I, I don't want to undercut your prediction because I think a lot of people are hoping you're right. Um, <laughs> what was your prediction in May 26, two years ago when we were about to host the Grey Cup? Just wondering. Um, I believe I had the exact same proclamation. <laughs> I was a little worried about that. I was now, I did, I did get the final two teams correct okay. in the Grey Cup, and I just thought that Hamilton would beat Winnipeg, and well, we all know what happened. Well, and Hamilton opens the season, the regular season, against said Winnipeg Blue Bombers. That'll be uh, the 9th of June in Winnipeg. However, tomorrow night, uh, they play in Montreal. This is, this to me, Rick, is a bit of a puzzler of a game. And, and you know, just because reading Steve Milton today, uh, Bo Levi Mitchell is not even going to dress for this one. Mm-hmm. That's a bit of a puzzler to me. Now, there, you know, I'm. You, let's say you're the coach. Rick Zamperin has now usurped Orlando Steinauer. Is your concern more that Bo Levi Mitchell doesn't get hurt in a meaningless game because he's that important, or do you want the more playing time to build that chemistry with the guys because he's on a new team? I, at this point, would be more concerned with the injury possibility. And, you know, that, that's, that's always a concern in football, but I don't think players or coaches think about that unless they are playing hurt and it might be, you know, kind of in the back of their mind. But at the end of the day, you know, this team, even with, you know, the last couple of years for, for Bo, that's kind of been, you know, not not the Bo that everyone is, is accustomed to seeing, you know, winning Grey Cups and, and most outstanding player awards. He has been dealing with some injuries over the last few seasons. I, I don't think that is the overwhelming, um, um, you know, thought in Orlando's mind in terms of not uh, playing Bo Levi Mitchell tomorrow because, you know, he's also not playing Simone Lawrence and Tim White and James Butler and Joel Figueroa and David Beard and Jameer Thurman and on and on and on. There's so many guys that at the end of the day, they know what kind of players those guys are. So, and we saw a little snippet of them last week against Toronto. Bo Levi Mitchell played a couple of series. Six passes. First two yeah, series, was six two, passes. Two and out. And, yeah. you know, second series, I thought he was great. So, he knows what those guys are all about. Tomorrow is a pure, let's see who all these other guys and what they can do. And it'll be interesting to see what they can. Yeah, and, and you know, when you mentioned Simone Lawrence, uh, yeah, he's been injured, although I don't think that's it. The, the only reason I mentioned Bo Levi Mitchell as an ex- exception to that rule is, again, because he is new on this team and you would mm-hmm. seemingly want him having... Oper- now, you've had practice, you've worked out with guys, but it's not the same as playing in a game. Yeah. Does this say something then, do you think? Is there a subliminal statement in here that says, you know, there's probably going to be at least one or two teams in the East that aren't going to be that great. We're not really worried. We've got all this time. Even if we, even if it takes us two or three weeks to get rolling, so be it. We're still going to win the East. Yeah, I mean, there, I, I think there's a quiet confidence with this team. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, I think come the preseason, I think with this team especially, knowing that they have you know a lot of talent, a lot of veterans on this team, and yes, some new guys like Bruce Levi and, and Jameer Thurman, who's a new guy, and so is James Butler. But you know, because they know what they're getting out of those guys, this is a true test to say, all right, we have some you know big decisions in terms of our depth guys. You know, who are those special teamers that that might come out of a you know a, a backup cornerback position, mm-hmm. or you know one of the linebackers that could play special teams? We got to know. 
what they can do. So that's why they're going to be playing tomorrow night. When it comes to the East, yeah, the door is wide open. You know, Toronto has, you know, a great defense and a quarterback that is a, a relative unknown, you know, save for what he did in the Grey Cup last year and then, you know, a couple of big plays. But that remains a big question mark. Montreal is in rebuild mode. They have Cody Fajardo, but a lot of other, you know, question marks slash red flags. What kind of team are they going to be? And many people think Ottawa, this is the year that they're going to jump back up into, you know, contention mode. But Jeremiah Masoli, here he is in, in training camp. He's a little nicked up. So, that, again, is another big question mark in the East. So if you're looking at the Ticats roster on paper, and that's all we can do right now, um, they're looking pretty good. And that's not to say it's smooth sailing because, you know, one or two injuries away can derail any team. Um, they still have to go out and, and, and put the uh, the points on the board. But I think they're in the driver's seat to, to start the season, especially in the East. Okay, now let's go back to what you where we started this thing because uh, I think a lot of people, well, I think a lot of people for probably the past three or four years have thought the Ticats were going to win starting the season. They, mm-hmm. They've always been one of the favorites. Two years ago, they were hosting, knowing that in 2023, there was going to be a second Grey Cup, two in three years. So you wanted, you really wanted to win in 2021, and they were very close. They lost in overtime. Yeah. But you know what? They always had 2023 waiting. So how much pressure is on this team then this time, because boy, if the, the Grey Cup's not going to, you, know, you can win the Grey Cup elsewhere, but the Grey Cup's not going to be back here. And this is a veteran team, and Bo Levi Mitchell's getting up in years, like a lot of them are. I, I mean, is is this the the year that man you'd better do it, or we got questions after this one? Yeah, no. I mean, you could have said you know the same thing in 2019 after they went to the Grey Cups somewhat unexpectedly and, and going 15 and three that season. I mean, no one saw that especially when Masoli went down with his with his ACL injury and here's this Dane Evans guy who comes out of nowhere and leads him all the way to the Great Cup but even in that knowing that they weren't hosting you know that was a nice surprise knowing that they were hosting after the pandemic uh, loss season there was a lot of pressure to get to that game and yeah they got to it but they didn't end up winning knowing that this is as you mentioned probably the last one in Hamilton for at least a few years you would think uh, with the veterans that they have like Simone and like Bo Levi um, there is an immense amount of pressure to win this season because every sports team has a window. Yep. And we're not quite sure how much longer this window is going to be open for this tie-cap team. Now, the beauty of the CFL is there's only nine teams, and you can turn around a franchise uh, in a relatively quick time span compared to other leagues. Yeah, or you can uh, wait 24 years. Well, yeah, well, that's too. I mean, at least they've at least they've been to Great yes, Cup. Yes, they have. So they've had that opportunity. They just have not closed the door the door in the most important game of the season. So yeah, there's a ton of pressure for sure. I I do think. I mean, I really when you look at the East, I I mean, okay, so Toronto every once in a while comes out of nowhere and wins a Great Cup. Yeah. Um, inexplicably. Nice, <laughs> um, but I, I just, I don't see another team in the East that really should challenge the Ticats if, and it's a giant if, I mean, they've put so much money, we got to run here, they've put so much money and effort into Bo Levi Mitchell. If he is Bo Levi Mitchell, I think there's no other team in the East that gets close to them. But after the last couple of years, I think there's probably more of an if emphasis on the Bo Levi Mitchell question than maybe there would have been before. 
Yes, and it's it's uh, you know any Leaf fan will believe in the Harold Ballard curse. There's some kind of curse with this Ticats team. I'm not sure what it's called, but it it, it seems to exist because the Dave Hack wrong? curse. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell guy. Dave. He's a nice yeah. guy. Don't tell Dave. He's cursed us. Yeah, I'm not sure what it's called, but yeah, it, it, I mean the 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 laneway is there, and let's just hope it's not a Lincoln Alexander Parkway shutdown weekend kind of laneway when they oh, run into the yeah. playoffs in a hot team. Because it's only one game, and you're win, and you're in, or you're out. Uh, but this this team has what it takes to go all the way. Uh, tomorrow night, seven thirty, right here on nine hundred CHML. Followed by Rick Zamprin with the fifth quarter. After that, you can call in, and uh, you will be talking about all kinds of players who you may have no idea who they are because they're the guys trying to make their spot on the team. But hey, that can be an interesting conversation too. A season starts the following Friday in Winnipeg. Uh, Rick, appreciate it. You go to bed. You got to be up early tomorrow. You can catch Rick at on Hamilton. Good morning, Hamilton. Tomorrow morning, five thirty. Thanks for doing this. You got it anytime. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on nine hundred CHML. A couple days ago, well, a few days ago, here on the show, uh, Ben and I were chatting about this collection that we had seen, and so I had sort of stumbled upon. And I got to tell you, I was. I was blown away. This is this is probably the greatest, uh, not even probably, this is the greatest pop culture collection there's got to be out there. It is stuff from, every, like, important stuff, incredible stuff from every TV show, it seems, that ever mattered. And it, a lot of it, a bunch of it, is going up for auction beginning tomorrow. But the guy, there is a person behind all this. It's not a company. It's not a studio. There is a person behind this. His name is James... Commissar, who joins us now. James, how are you? Hey, man. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I appreciate it. I'm thrilled to have you on. Look, I, I saw this book. I went through this book and spent probably way more time than I should have spent going, <laughs> going through this. This is, I mean, y- you must get this all the time from people when they see the stuff you have and they say, this is, this is the most incredible collection they've ever seen. Well, I feel so lucky that I got to spend 30 plus years, uh, finding, rescuing, and restoring these pieces. And I feel pretty damn good that I'm going to finally get to pass them along to fans. Um, We tried, Heritage Auctions and I, tried to come up with, like, say, a thousand lots that represented the entire history of television, from the first flickering moments to what was on TV last night. Uh, All price points. There's stuff for a couple hundred, and there's stuff for a couple hundred thousand, and it's all happening tomorrow. It starts at HA.com. What was your favorite TV show growing up, Scott? Uh, well, you know what? Uh, going through the book, I mean, there were so many things. That w- when I saw that you have the bar from Cheers, the entire bar, I thought, you know, that would actually fit in my basement. That would be lovely. I- I'm going to have to win a lottery or two before I can bid on it. But, you know, that was, uh, no, there's, there's, there's a million. I mean, Ben and I were talking the, the life ring from Gilligan's Island or Gilligan's Hat or... Um, you know, whatever. But uh, let's go back for a second before we get to all that. Where did this even start? Where did you, how did you start to become the guy who got all this? <laughs> well, it's a sad story, Scott. <laughs> um, you know, I was a chubby kid growing up, and I did not want to have anything to do with Little League. So I ran home from school on my chubby little legs, and I sat there and I watched TV. You know, the Partridge Family, Mass, Star Trek, that kind of stuff. And in some wacky way, those characters kind of felt like after-school friends to me. And when I found out uh, a number of years later, when I started to be a TV writer, and I had access to the studios, and I saw this stuff was just being thrown away like garbage. Come I, on. I, 
need to do something. I need to save my after-school friends. They were really? They were really just throwing stuff away after they'd be done with it? Well, as odd as it sounds, when a show goes off the air, the studios want to keep the things that look ND. ND is a nondescript. Because if you have just like a military outfit or a plain suit, you put those back in costume rental stock and you can rent them out over again. All right. In those days, if there was a big Superman S on the chest, um, it was very difficult to rent out. So those pieces they wanted to get rid of. Those, that was considered just uh, garbage to them. And so uh, in those days, I was pretty much scooping up the garbage that the studios were throwing away. And that was costumes, props, sets, uh, everything. And I have to <laughs> tell you, you know, I, I'm kind of giggling because now with the sale, we're having investment publications saying that I'm, you know, some shrewd speculator who thought about this stuff before anyone else did. But, oh, boy, is that not true? I mean, for like the first 20 years, people thought I was insane. What, what am I doing trying to conserve Keith Partridge's satin pants? <laughs> well, I mean, OK, if you're using that example alone, yeah. OK, that's a fair question, but. But, like, I can't believe that nobody else, and I don't even think from what you're saying, you weren't looking at this as something you were saving for value. It was saving for for just reasons that you loved it. But I can't believe nobody else saw that. Nobody saw it. And, you know, my goal was not art market value because until, like, you know, a number of years ago, there was no such thing as art market value for TV memorabilia. I mean... At some point, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, you know, there was the great silver screen, and then there was the stupid idiot box. And that was considered just complete, disposable, you know, Brady Bunch, I broke mom's vase, how do I put it back together before she sees it kind of storylines. And then came the great Norman Lear, who came up with All in the Family and all of this sort of incredible programming that gave the viewing audience some credit and told stories that were similar to what was being discussed at our own, you know, at our own dining room tables across America. And that all changed. And now, of course, in the current day, the best entertainment is on Hulu and on Netflix and these new shows that are streaming into our hearts and our homes. TV is the premier storytelling medium. So none of us could have counted on that. And, you know, during the pandemic, people were not watching movies. They were watching Friends and Frasier and The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. And these are sort of the characters that feel like extended members of our family. So, of course, we want their costumes and props. And, of course, we want things that they wore or wielded because they're like old friends. What, James, what was the fir- do you remember what the first piece was that you grabbed and took home? Of course. Um, they were what's called bumper cards. They were shown on Johnny Carson. The Tonight Show set coming in and out of commercials that would say, The Tonight Show, stay tuned, more to come. Yeah, yeah. And I bought those. I think it was $212 for a pair of them. And I thought, what the heck is going on here? This is extremely memorable, hand-painted art from the king of late night, and it's going for 200 bucks. And do you think I ever, ever, ever envisioned that at some point in the future, Mr. Johnny Carson would personally give me the complete tonight show set. I mean, it's like something wow. that you couldn't even, I couldn't even fantasize to that level. Um, and, you know, we had the good fortune of caring for these pieces for 30 plus years. And uh, I got together with my friends at heritage auctions 
com, and we thought, you know what, let's give this stuff back to the fans. I've had such a, it's been such a pleasure and an honor to spend so many years conserving these pieces, but you know what, let's let it go back out into the world. The fans have always appreciated these pieces and all these uh, sort of collectors turned curators. I want them to enjoy the pieces. Um, I do believe at some point, God willing, there'll be a TV museum, but it's not happening today. So that's what we decided. We're going to let the Batmans and Robins and Genies and Endoras and Captain Kirks and Uhuras and even the Cheers Bar. We're going to put that back out in the world and let them find good forever homes. And it all happens here tomorrow, tomorrow Friday at HA.com. Did you then, was this a case where early on, it doesn't sound like it. I was going to say, was this a case where you were almost dumpster diving because they just dumped these? Or was it always things that you bought from the studio? Well, um, you know, most of the pieces I have in this collection I had to purchase. Um, but there were days where, you, you know, when a, a TV show goes off the air, what they want to do as soon as possible is free up that soundstage because they want to get the next show. They want to rent the next lighting package. They want to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. So a lot of times these sets would be rolled out into the studio parking lot. And sometimes they'd sit in the parking lot for a, a month or a year or 10 years, just turning into dust in the parking lot. And so there was no care given to any of these pieces. Um, and sometimes it would just be a matter of, look, you see all that stuff rotting in the parking lot? Why don't I come in with my own truck? I'll haul it away. It's out of your way, um, and I'll take better care of it than you. You give it to me, and I'll haul it away. And they were like, are you kidding? Could you come today? What a great idea. So it, it, it had zero value to the studios, and it's, you know, it's not their fault. They're not museums. They're there to create entertainment content for the whole world. Um, and I was there at the right time with this light bulb moment mm-hmm. kind of idea that, come on, let's save these pieces. These are these are these shows are part of our shared American experience. Hundred percent, hundred percent, yeah, hundred percent. Like, what do you you guys have looked through the catalog? I appreciate that. Tell me a few pieces that stand out that. Uh, you feel that should be conserved from their from the history perspective. What pieces do you oh, kind of go? Oh my goodness! Thank God it's being saved. Okay, so it was funny. I was talking to my wife the other day when I said uh, when I had connected with your uh, your person and, and arranged for you to talk to us today. And one of the things I said was I in the catalog, and I don't even know if it's up for auction. Although you just mentioned it was the Batman and Robin, the original Adam Ward, uh, Adam West, Burt Ward suits. And she goes, those things must have just fallen apart by now. And I said, well, they don't know. They look like they're pretty well preserved. Like that, that kind of thing. I, I don't even know how you place a value on that because it's such, an, uh, such a piece of pop culture. Everybody knows the Batman. Even, right. if you were, even if you're only 15 years old now, you know of that show from you've seen clips or whatever. It's, just, it's ingrained Absolutely. in. in um, ben and I, my, my operator here, you were talking to when he called, um, we had joked when we looked at the at the program at the book a few weeks ago. I said, you know what? I got to put in a bid. I'm going to put in a thousand dollar bid on Fraser's microphone. That would seem appropriate for the studio. And then I saw the starting bid. I think is ten thousand. So we'll reconsider. <laughs> but nonetheless, again, one of those things that you know you just look at and you go, man, it's amazing that they just found a home somewhere. That's so true. By the way, that Batman and Robin costumes they are available. We kept them together in one line. 
heritage auctions and I decided that we, we owe it to history to keep Batman and Robin together in one lot. Archie needed the chairs. we got to keep those together and so on. Johnny Carson's Tonight Show set, all together in one grouping. So they can live on in a new home and stay together. Batman and Robin is, boy, I mean, I would sure think that uh, they'd be over $500,000, and they are in very good condition. Amazing. Um, the good news is if a costume, once the show goes off the air, if they go into rental stock, they're, gonna, they're not going to do well because every time you dry clean a costume, the chemicals are so powerful that they start to fade the color immediately. The Batman costume was retired right after the series, went into a private collection, and as such is, a, is a, maybe the best condition Batman that's ever been offered at auction. Robin has extremely bright, vibrant colors, and that's because they weren't uh, treated as a recoverable asset. They weren't rented and rented and rented, and so yep. they are in beautiful condition. And you're right, that brand is as relevant today as it was in 1965, and there's no sign that <laughs> comic book-themed entertainment, there's no sign that's ever going to go away. So when you think about it in those terms, Batman and Robin, the 66 series, I mean, that was at the epicenter of the sort of the, the origin story of featuring superheroes in television and film, it's really, if you could get those for 500000 in my opinion, that's uh, still con uh, considered quite a buy. I, another one that, I, as I'm going through the book here, we only have a couple minutes left, but another one, and I don't know that this is up for auction, and I don't even know where this falls in value, but it just, it struck me, I stopped and I thought, this is a childhood thing, but you have a pair of Mr. Rogers sneakers. And I thought that is just everybody again, because of what he was and that it's so part of pop culture. It's just amazing to think what those would be worth. Yeah. Mr. Rogers, uh, I do have a pair of his, uh, sneakers and one of his sweaters that were gifted to me directly from Dr. Rogers. Those are not in this sale, but we do have Captain Kangaroo and Mr. Green mm. Jean's original costumes. We have Amazing. Bozo the Clown. We have Howdy Doody and Buffalo Bob. We have a tremendous assortment of children's television costumes, which are really among the most popular category today because, of course, when one buys something, they're not just buying the object. They're buying the story behind it and, and their personal yeah. history with that piece. So um, there are very strong feelings in the marketplace for you know, TV shows that we watched in the mornings or especially Saturday morning kids shows. We people have a very strong uh, attraction to those pieces, as do I. Well, you, you asked me what my ones were that stuck out. What, what's the one for you? And now this is probably really hard. You've got a million pieces in this collection, but what, what's the one that you just cannot believe you were able to get your hands on? That would have to be Johnny Carson's Tonight Show set. You know, I grew up as a Fat kid watching a lot of TV, as we talked about. And one of my great dreams was, I'm going to write jokes for Johnny Carson's monologue. That was, my mom would let me stay up. The monologue came on around 11.35 p.m. here in Los Angeles. And I always thought, I'm going to write for this guy at some point. And so he was always a very important figure to me in my own childhood. Um, so that was all very meaningful. And the idea that... Um, I could that he would invite me over at his home and someday give it to me. I mean, it's just beyond the beyond. How can somebody even dream that big? And he entrusted with me. And the funny story, I know you got to go, is when I met Mr. Carson at his home to talk about taking over the Tonight Show set, I had all the stuff 
memorized about um, why it should be me, why I am the one talented and skilled enough to take care of his set. <laughs> and in actual fact, I had to pivot. His idea was, nope, it should go to the dump. Nobody cares about my set. I had, he told me I had the tackiest set in Hollywood. Who's going to want to see it? And so I had to convince him just for a Stay on planet Earth. It's not going to <laughs> landfill. So the fact that his desk, I'm looking at it right now, is wow. sitting there with the microphone and the guest chair and the guest couch. It just seems like something that shouldn't even be here on Earth. And the fact that it's all been held together and conserved to museum standard. I'm so happy that Heritage Auctions is offering it tomorrow. Yeah, HA.com, you can still get your bids in. The fact that that's going to find a new home tomorrow is kind of exciting to me. I think Mr. Carson would find it absolutely ridiculous that, uh, you know, 30 years after he's gone off the air, there are still many people who would want to buy that. There's a lot of interest in it. I think it's wonderful. I think it's great. And I'm so happy to have had this journey. And I'm so happy that it's all here going off tomorrow at ha.com. James, you, I tell you, as we let you go here, what, what is fun about, well, there's a lot of reasons it's fun to talk to you about these things, but it, it sounds like even though you have been in this world and had all this stuff around you and had all these things in your collection, it, it sounds to me anyway like you still have the, the excitement when you get one of these pieces or you still get the buzz of what The Tonight Show oh said or the God. Cheers bar or whatever does that everyone else would. You are so right. I mean, I am, like everyone listening, including you, I am a fan and I'm a collector. And even though I've seen some of these pieces for 30 years, my little heart lights up every time I see this. And it's because like, if you collect Latin American art or something like that, it's a very intellectual process. It registers in your brain. But if you see Captain Kirk's costume or Jeannie's costume, you want to go up to it and hug it. You know, it's part of your, (laughs) your history. It's a very personal experience. And I feel completely attached to every piece in this auction and I'm excited for people to write me and tell me what piece they have and what they got and uh, I'm just really excited that they will find Forever Homes and um, you know TV is certainly worthy of preservation and conservation and uh, as they say for the auction tomorrow stay tuned Stay tuned. Same bat time, same bat channel. Uh, James, listen, I really, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking a few minutes. I know how busy you are and you're getting close to the time for the auction, but really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, guys. Take care. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.